Hi, welcome to Speaking of Sex with the Pleasure Mechanics. This is Chris from PleasureMechanics.com. And on today's episode, I am thrilled to bring you a conversation with Emily Nagoski. Emily Nagoski is author of one of our favorite sex books ever, Come As You Are. She's been on the podcast before for a two-part episode about the surprising science of sex, and I will link to that in the show notes page, because if you are new to Emily Nagoski's work, you will definitely want to check that out. And today she's here to talk about her new book, Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle. And we talk all about how stress and sexuality are connected, how we all struggle in this culture to complete our stress cycle and find a sense of purpose and joy and belonging. It is an amazing book and we loved it so much for the next four episodes of Speaking of Sex, we are going to be diving into a little mini series, a four episode exploration of the themes that emerge through burnout and this conversation around stress and sexuality. You can find all of our burnout episodes and resources at pleasuremechanics.com slash burnout and join our free online course at pleasuremechanics.com slash free. All right, here we go with my interview with Emily Nagoski. Welcome to the Speaking of Sex mini-series on sexual burnout. Emily Nagoski, welcome to Speaking of Sex. I'm so excited to be here. I should say welcome back because you've been on the show before about your first book, Come As You Are, which is now widely considered to be one of the most important sex books in the field. Is it? Yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad to be the one to tell you that. You know, we refer <laughs> it all the time. I think it is, it's one of those books that both professionals and our wide audience both say they have so many aha moments with. Um, and even they start with our interview with you on the podcast and then get the book and we're like, I have no idea how normal I was, how common these struggles I feel are, um, and how explainable they are. Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't have Come As You Are on your bookshelf, please get it now. And while you're there, order Emily's second book, Burnout. And I am so excited to talk to you about this book because you announced the topic of this book a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear your journey of how did you go from writing this book about female sexuality and the science of sexuality to a book about burnout and what is burnout and what's that link? So that's an hour right there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's an origin story here. The usual... Uh, next step for someone who's written a book about women's sexuality would be to write a book about men's sexuality or couples' sexuality or something like that, uh, or, or relationships. Um, but when I was traveling around talking to people about Come As You Are and the science of women's sexual well-being, people were not saying to me, oh, could you write a book about men? Could you write a book about couples? Mm -hmm. uh, what they were saying was, yeah, Emily, all that sex science, that's really great. But you know what was really important to me was that chapter on feelings and stress. Yep. Uh, so, and I was surprised. I worked so hard on the sex science and people do appreciate <laughs> that, but... Like it kept over and over, it kept coming back. You know what really changed my life was that chapter on stress. So uh, I have an identical twin sister. Yeah. And I told her about this. She is a choral conductor uh, who is a conservatory trained performance musician. 
Um, and I was like, so when I tell people, when I talk to people, they're like, uh, what really matters to me is this stress part. And she was like, no, der. <laughs> because whoever teaches us how to feel our feelings. Um, we grew up in a family that was pretty dysfunctional and we had to learn how to have feelings out of books. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I got a master's degree in counseling psychology. She got a master's degree in choral conducting. At a certain point, we realized we both got master's degrees in how to listen and feel feelings, which probably says something about like what we left home needing still. Right. Uh, so she was, so she was, she had really struggled in grad school. So we were having this conversation and she said, you know what, when I finally learned this whole, like completing the stress response cycle thing, I'm pretty sure it saved my life. She said. And then she looks at me and she goes, twice. Mm -hmm. And that was the point when I was like, okay, well, we should write a book about that. And that's when we decided it was October of 2015 that we had our first meeting with my literary agent about like, the next book is not gonna be a book about men or relationships, it's gonna be about stress and women. And how timely it's released now. I think in the past few years, this conversation about the toll of stress on our bodies, on our relationships, on our creativity, um, the conversations about yes. gender imbalance of yes. the daily micro stress, about micro traumas, all of this conversation has come to the surface in such a big way. And this book lands on our laps like a, a revelation. <laughs> um, I, I cried when I read. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. I opened up the PDF you sent and I cried because so much of our conversations with people are getting couples past this hump so they yes. can be in this zone of enjoyment mm -hmm. and pleasure together. And we realized, you know, we have been talking to people for years about the enjoyment phase of sex when you can be in that sensuality, when you can be in pleasure. Yes. But that is inaccessible without this book without the, the knowledge, the without wisdom. The that dealing with the stress. Yeah. Yes. So talk to us about that. What is the stress response cycle? What do we need to know about completing it? Okay. So there's two parts I want to talk about. One is the stress response cycle. And the other is the gender dynamic that traps women in particular in their stress. Uh, so the stress response cycle, and this is in Come As You Are, uh, and it's chapter one of Burnout. Uh, physiologically, stress is not just a stress response, like you're confronted with a stressor and that activates stress. Uh, it is a stress response cycle. So in the environment where we evolved, our stress response was to help us deal with things like being chased by a lion or charged by a hippo. Did you know that hippos are the most dangerous land mammals on earth? Terrifying. Hippos. <laughs> so you're being charged by a hippo, right? And your body sees this threat approaching you and it floods you with cortisol and adrenaline and uh, uh, changes your digestive system and your immune system and your hormones. Like every body system is affected by this threat coming toward you. All of these changes are in preparation to make you do one thing, which is to run like hell to get away from that threat. So that's what you do. And at that point, there's only two possible outcomes. Either you get eaten by the lion or trampled by the hippo, or you make it home. You run back to your village and somebody opens a door and you slip right in and the hippo can pound against the wall but can't get you. You are safe. And you jump up and down and you hug the person who just saved your life. And that is the complete stress response cycle. So it is not, you'll notice, getting rid of the stressor, the threat. It is 
getting through the stress response cycle by doing what your body is telling you to do in order to get to a safe place. These days we are, alas, really very rarely charged by hippos. Instead, our stressors are things like our boss and our kids and our sexuality and our body image and traffic. And those are not things that you can literally physically escape, mm -hmm. nor can you literally physically fight them. Like I'm an advocate for healthy expressions of rage, but you're actually not allowed to punch anybody in the face, mm -hmm. which is what your body wants you to do. So the question is, how do we complete the stress response cycle itself when we cannot, when uh, dealing with the stressor doesn't do the trick? Because that's the hard part, right? You're confronted with your boss who's kind of an asshole and your body responds with exactly the same physiological response, the adrenaline and the cortisol and glycogen, oh my, and your body wants to get up and run or, you know, punch him in the face or whatever. And most but of us have layers of daily chronic stressors. It's happening every single day right. that you have like just the little things like your kids won't put on their shoes and that's, you know, you stand over them and you tap your toe and you're like a good parent and then they put on their shoes and then you're five minutes late for work and then your boss is a dick about it. And then like it just accumulates yeah. and builds up. You've got all this stress living in your body and you manage it because you are a grown up and that is what we do is we manage all of our stressors but just because you're managing your stressors doesn't mean you're managing the stress itself the physiological change in your body and so you mentioned there finding the place of safety and then the jumping up and down so can you bring us into those two moments so the yes. safety piece and the movement piece what are so those about what the physiology of the stress response is saying is your body is not a safe place right now. Mm -hmm. You need to do something to move your body into a safe place. So you arrive in a place of social connection with someone you love and trust with safe walls around you, right? Um, and you've already done the running. So physical activity, when you're being chased by a lion, what do you do? You run. When you are stressed out by your boss and parenting and all and political world and everything else, what do you do? You run. Physical activity, any movement of any kind is the most efficient strategy. The language your body speaks is body language and what it wants is to move. It doesn't have to be running. It can be like dancing it out in your living room. It can be a Zumba class. It can be literally just jumping up and down. It can be lying in bed still and just tensing all of your muscles as hard as you can. Physical activity is the most efficient way, but there's also as the story points out, social connection is an incredibly important stress completing process for humans. We are a massively social species. We are basically a hive species, we're a herd species. We are only safe when we are with our tribe. So if you run to safety, but you're still alone, that's not fully complete. When you run to safety and arrive to some loving, affectionate other. In the book A Million, I call it the bubble of love. Then your body can relax because it knows you are safe with your tribe. So this can take the form of small stuff. You know what? Just a happy little chat with your uh, barista, a pleasant, hey, how are you doing with your seatmate on a train? I know people believe that everybody wants to sit in silence on a train, but it turns out they've done research on this. And even though people believe that, if you actually have just like a simple, polite conversation, people feel better. Both people feel better. 
if they've just had that little bit of social connection. But it also can take the, play, uh, the form of deeper intimacy, like a 20-second hug is one of the recommendations. You uh, wrap your arms around your partner and you just hold each other for 20 seconds in a row. That's a long time to hug. But what happens is it teaches your body that you are now in a safe place. You're in a place of safety. Of course, this assumes that your partner is a safe enough person whom you can hold for 20 seconds in a row, which yeah. is sort of the point of the exercise. John Gottman recommends the six second daily kiss. And again, that could be an awkwardly long, that's not six one second kisses, that's one six second kiss. And uh, you gotta really like and trust your partner in order to make that a thing that can happen in your life. Uh, and so it reminds you, it sets your body in this place of safety and connection that I have this place to fall back on when things go wrong. I have a home to come to at the end of a difficult, stressful day. Um, and that completes the cycle. It transitions you out of my body is not safe into a place of I am safe and at home now. And what do we know about the science of the connection between that physical embodied feeling of feeling safe and at home with things like desire and willingness to be erotic? Oh, we know, on the one hand, we know a lot. On the other hand, we know barely anything. Mm -hmm. We know for sure that uh, a feeling of safety is pretty necessary for a lot of people to experience pleasure. Desire is a little more complicated. 10 to 20% of people actually experience an increase in interest in sex when they are in a place of negative affect, stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, despair, repressed rage. We've all got it. Um, and the other 80 to 90% experience no change or else a reduction in their interest in, in, in sex, which makes, the, the second makes clear linear sense in the sense of uh like is being chased by a lion a good time to be interested in sex <laughs> probably not right so clearly when you're feeling stressed out having sex go away makes sense but it turns out for some people our brains are just wired a little differently stress sort of crosses into the activation of the sexual response it does not increase sexual pleasure in fact it might reduce it but it increases interest in sex uh, because there's a sort of overall increase in arousability or sensitivity to having all the accelerators in your central nervous system activated. Uh, and this actually puts people at increased risk for sexual compulsivity or uh, risk-taking behavior that they would not engage in if they were not in a place of negative emotion. Um, they find themselves using sex as a way to manage their stress, depression, anxiety, loneliness, instead of using these healthy things. And it's not bad ex until it feels like you are no longer in control of your sexuality, your sexuality is in control of you. Mm -hmm. But again, like this scientific knowledge and then self-mapping that onto your reality. I just talked to a guy who recognized he was doing just that, like mm -hmm. using sex to relieve stress and kind of using other people in that process. Mm -hmm. So he started martial arts. 
and warmed him. Yes. Cause he had that physical outlet. It was like the touch, the rough, the yes. like rumbling around. And then he was like, and then I felt like I could choose when I wanted sex for other reasons. And it was I like, Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Specifically about martial arts. You mentioned the like rough and tumble mm -hmm. play is a primary process that is as natural to humans as sex mm -hmm. say that it comes and goes depending on the context, but rough and tumble play and story play are both innate to humans and they fulfill something really deep inside us the same way that sex can. And we can use sex as story play and as rough and tumble play, but if we're getting enough access to play, that's another way that we can help to come transition out of the stress response cycle into relaxation. We can complete that response cycle through play, rough and tumble play with your kids, going for going on a bike race, um, or story play, acting, creative self-expression, writing, storytelling. Those are all uh, other effective ways to complete the stress response cycle. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're talking about um, this experience and so many people are now feeling that so deeply, like, yes, this makes sense to me. And it makes sense to so many of us because it is not an individual experience. It is a cultural I don't know if you want to call it an epidemic. <laughs> um, it's a cultural moment we're in where so many of us are locked in this stress response cycle. I don't and think it's even close to new. I think what's new is that we're noticing it and deciding that it's actually not okay at all. Do you think it's accelerating with um, ever on technology, with the pace of modern life? Like, do you think it's more a problem now than it was 100 years ago? I just don't know, because yeah. 100 years ago, we didn't have antibiotics, <laughs> as yes. well as not having phones. It's really hard to yeah. be able, and like our food environment was totally different, and it's impossible to compare. Yeah. But one thing that has stayed shockingly the same is this thing that Amelia and I call human giver syndrome in the book. Uh, so Tell me. Because uh, <laughs> I think I have it. Tell me. Yeah, many- <laughs> What is human giver syndrome? Uh, the- we take the term from this book I highly recommend to everyone on earth. It's called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny by a moral philosopher named Kate Mann, M-A-N-N-E. Uh, and uh, it's really short, but pretty dark. Uh, and she suggests a world where sort of hypothetically there's two kinds of people. There are the human beings who have a moral obligation to be their full humanity, the human beings. And then there's the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity to the beings every moment of their time every drop of their energy their attention their love even their bodies are they're morally obliged to give everything in service of the beings so guess which one women are <laughs> and uh in this thing that we call human giver syndrome we have this belief that women have a moral obligation to be pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others, which includes not expressing any emotional needs of their own. So we smile and are nice and try not to make anybody uncomfortable. And in order to do that, we are not completing our stress response cycles because we're not allowed to. There is no space for us to express our fear, to move our bodies, to purge our rage. If Amelia and I had set out to design a system to burn out half the population, we could not have designed anything more efficient. 
because women are trapped in this role of smiling and being pretty and nice and not imposing any of their emotional needs on anybody. It is amazing to me how the Me Too movement keeps having the narrative switched on to look at what you're doing to the men because women aren't allowed to talk about their own feelings, their own personal experience. We just ignore that. We neglect that. That's not what the story is about. That can't be what the story is about because women, that's not part of how we think about women are too emotionally needy, which means we're not allowed to have any emotional needs. So of course we feel stuck in the middle of all of these emotions and they're like setting up camp in our bodies. Everybody sort of has a sense of like what organs their stress lives in. It's my digestive system. For me, it's her joints, her back and her knees. Uh, everybody's got to, some people get uh, migraines, headaches, like your stress changes your physiology. It's a real, emotions aren't like just these sort of things, these ideas. They are physical events that happen in your physical body and they degrade your health. I have lost count of the number of people who told me, the number of women who've told me that they've ended up in the hospital because of stress-induced illness, and that includes my sister. Mm -hmm. And to broaden this out, it's women, and then it's compounded by things like race, class, education, um, environment where you live, environmental toxins. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. it's human givers. The the book itself is about gender, but she very clearly acknowledges the ways that uh, people of color in the United States, especially, but all over the world are expected um, to smile and be nice and accept their own servitude. Uh, And when we tell stories like in the media about people of color, the stories we celebrate are the times when uh, people of color forgive white people or rise above it. Uh, The shooting in the church in South Carolina, we told these celebratory stories about how forgiving these Christians were of this boy who killed so many members of their community, um, which is a beautiful thing. And nobody has a right to expect that of anybody. People are allowed to be enraged and despairing when tragedy strikes their life. And how many of us would feel equally comfortable, I'm talking in particular about white people like me, how many of us would feel genuinely equally comfortable with an expression of rage and despair from the black community at these kinds of violence, as opposed to like forgiveness and generosity and Christian spirit and rising above. I think that the more we can do to create space for the rage and despair of the people who have over generations pulled themselves against white people's will into a position of any sort of power to have a conversation with us, like we need to create space for them to have all of the feelings that they have. It's our moral duty, it is our obligation to allow all of that stuff to complete and to bear witness to the pain that has been inflicted over generations. Am I getting too like preachy about this? Um, you know, I came to this middle section of the book and I said hallelujah out loud because you put in this book these issues of the chronic micro stressors, the chronic daily traumas that so many people have to embody. Yes. 
And it's a conversation that has been missing from a lot of the self-care narrative of like, take a bubble bath and it'll be okay. Right. Like, not okay yeah, no. if there's not food in the pantry for my kids. Right. Um, or And I talk about like, you know, you close the door and you're in a place of safety. What if there's no such thing as a place of safety for your body in this society? What if you're a trans woman of color in the United States? Where do you go? Where do you put your body where your body is actually going to be genuinely safe? There's going to be just little narrowly defined places where you can feel genuinely safe. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I talk about it in the book is you can gradually build up a way that your body can be a safe place for you to be even when your body is not in a safe place. And the more you can build that sense of relationship with your own body, and it happens most efficiently when you build it in connection with safe people in that bubble of love we talked about, um, the more you can be protected and sort of inoculated against uh, the noxious environment in which you have to put your body every day to live. So can you explain this to me? I was thinking the other day of how especially when we get involved in movements or in social causes, we can do extraordinary feats of labor and come home at the end of the day and feel energized and joyous and great. And then in other moments, especially if we're doing work, we resent or we don't feel um, seen for. It doesn't even have to be that much exertion and we can feel so depleted. Mm -hmm. So many of us want to rise to get involved, but we feel like, God, I can barely make it through my own day. Yes. So what is the purpose of like tapping into something bigger? Yeah. Okay. So the first three chapters of the book are in a section we call what you take with you, which is, it's the Star Wars reference of, you know, Luke asking Yoda about the cave, what's in there. And Yoda says, only what you take with you. Mm. He's talking about, so what is it inside you that you're going to carry with you into this battle? It's both the good stuff and the not so good stuff. And the things we carry are our stress response cycle that lives in our body, our uh, capacity to experience frustration, grief, and joy. And the third thing is our sense of meaning and purpose. We call it your something larger. Meaning is not something you find generally. It is something you make. You make meaning by connecting with something larger than yourself. Sometimes that's a spiritual something larger, like a God you believe in. Sometimes it is a cultural or ideological something larger, politics or science. Sometimes it is a social something larger, like your family. Sometimes it's a combination of those things. Sometimes it's something else entirely. For my sister, it's art. So you find the thing that brings you meaning. There's a lot, we have like a series of three different exercises you can do if you have, don't know what your something larger is. You connect with your something larger and that brings you a sense of meaning, which makes it easier to continue working hard. There are some days when the ways we engage with our something larger feel intensely rewarding and like we really like see the difference that we've made. And those are the days when we get home and we're like, yeah. It did it. Even though we haven't complete, you know, racism isn't over, sexism isn't over. Not everybody's having all the orgasms they want to have. Our job isn't done yet, but we made progress today. And then there are the days when you work really hard and you're trying to engage with your something larger and you just don't feel like you've done anything and you feel on empty. Here's the difficulty. 
the thing is, when that happens, it's usually because we're trying to get our sense of connection with our something larger from something outside of us, when in fact, our something larger is not actually something out there. It's not actually the God out there or the art out there or the science out there or the kids out there or something larger lives inside us. It is the representation of art and science and political change and the environment and our kids that lives inside us. So that when bad things happen, it can feel like we're losing contact with it. I use this analogy in the book that uh, when you're in an airplane and you hit a pocket of turbulence, you grab onto your chair Mm -hmm. as if you could hold the plane still by holding on to the chair. And you know that that's not how it works, but your hands don't know that that's how it works. Your hands are pretty sure if you grab onto the chair, you're going to be holding on to something really important. That's what happens during windows of turbulence in our lives. We grab onto our something larger and hold onto it, and it helps. The same way that holding onto your chair helps during turbulence. But when things get really bad, when tragedy strikes, when really terrible things happen, when the plane crashes, it can feel like we've lost contact entirely with our something larger. And that's never actually true. Only if we believe our something larger is outside of us do we really lose contact. When people reconnect with the something larger as it lives inside them, then the fire can never go out. Does that make sense? Is this a feeling of that belonging feeling so that we talked about the very physical embodied feeling of safety and belonging? Yeah. Is what we're talking about like a sense of belonging in the human family? In a, we actually had a really hard time separating the meaning chapter from the connection chapter. In fact, yeah, Yeah. a lot of the research, there's this one, I can't tell if it's desperately sad or hilarious study where, okay, so you're a subject in a study and you're supposed to make a little like greeting video for your partner who's in a different room and they're making a greeting video for you. And uh, so then you watch your partner's welcome video. Hi, we're about to be partners. And then your partner watches your video of them, of you. Your partner watches your video of yourself. Uh And then you get word back because you've been in different rooms all this time. The researcher comes back and says, hey, uh, your partner had to leave. They had an emergency. Or they say, hey, your partner had to leave. They decided they did not want to participate with you. (laughs) But um, could you do this one more thing? Just take this one little survey for us. And the survey is uh, an assessment of a person's sense of meaning and purpose in life. And as simple and small a feeling of social rejection as not being welcomed into an experiment with a stranger significantly reduces a person's sense of purpose and meaning. So our sense of meaning is absolutely connected to our feeling of being welcome into connection with other people. Because most of our something largers are about service to our community, to the people we care about. And if we're not allowed to be part of that, if we're not welcome as part of our community, what's, what, what purpose is there? Mm-hmm. And right now, I know when we talked about the human giver syndrome, we talked about the role of gender there. Right now, I'm thinking about um, 
the rejection so many men are feeling right now um, and just acknowledging like the hurt in them often comes from this disconnection with a sense of purpose because they've been told their humanity, their manhood, their worthiness is connected to their careers and their erections primarily. Um, Their ability to get access to women's bodies. Through their worthiness, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they can measure their value on earth by whether or not a woman says yes to them. So as a sex scientist, does it surprise you that we're having these conversations? Like if someone just tuned in in the middle of this podcast, if it was on public radio, they might think they're talking to like two spiritual explorers. Like <laughs> we're talking about some really big ideas, but you come at this through the science, through the evidence. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, how are you thinking? How are you feeling about, you're about to, I think this book is going to be very popular and I hope you have lots of interviews about it in the coming months. Um, how are you straddling this line between kind of science and these bigger questions of belonging and human joy? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Uh, most of the places where I get interviewed, nobody cares about the science. Nobody wants to talk about the science, Mm. which is fine. I am happy not to talk about the science if that's not what's going to persuade people. And if I've learned anything over the last, no, I've learned so much. I can't, over the last five years, I can't say that. One of the important (laughs) things I've learned over the last five years is that very few people are big old nerds like me. Mm. Very few people are really excited to talk about like the brain science underlying the sense of meaning and purpose. Very few people want to talk about like the neurochemistry and the rat research about gendered experiences of stress. Mostly they just want ideas and help. People want help enormously. And we trimmed the book hard in order to get it really focused on helping people feel like better Mm -hmm. so that they could do something to get out of these traps. Can we Um, please put out a geek version? (laughs) There's, we cut... Director's cut. Twice as much actual book. Yeah, there's at least a hundred thousand words of stuff we cut, um, including most. I'm ugh, including a lot of the trauma stuff. Mm. Well, um, it's another book waiting. It's another yeah. book because you know yeah. I hear you saying that about science, but I also feel like I feel like when people have these aha moments, like when we explain like the dual model control of arousal, for example, yeah. and they can map it. And you do such an amazing job telling stories around the science. Because when people can map this and feel the truth of this in their bodies, Mm -hmm. it helps them feel more human. Yeah. Um, And we do talk about that. I mean, I, neither Amelia nor I could tolerate talking about, because neither of us is a person of faith. hmm. We are not. And I know that a lot of self-help books lean hard on the author's face. Uh, And we have this chapter on meaning and we talk about how spirituality and connection with God can be a source of meaning and purpose. It can also be a way to complete the stress response cycle. A lot of people experience their connection with the divine as a loving presence that helps them to feel safe. And the reason we say people experience that is because they're accessing the loving kindness and compassion inside their own brain, which is changing their biochemistry. It's changing how their brain works. It's reducing the stress hormones in their brain when they pray. When you feel supported and loved, it sort of doesn't matter why. The fact is that feeling is real. It's happening in your body and it's good for you. 
When you give these options for how to access it, so one of the ways we've been talking about it is communal joy. Yes. So what is the space of communal joy? And that could be bird watching, right? Yeah, literally, yes. That's Um, most of the examples we give tend to be sort of musical because that's where um, uh Amelia lives. But I I was watching a Taylor Swift um, concert on Netflix the other day just to kind of see what the vibe was like. And I was like, oh, these teenagers, these young people are experiencing communal joy. Yeah. And we flock to these experiences. And sometimes it's like, why do you pay so much money for music you could listen to at home? And we go, we, we, um, and I also think about the constellations of pleasure, like, and how do we follow our constellations of pleasure to these places where we feel at home? Yeah. And that could be a video game world competition where you're, you know, and, um, but so many of us have not been told to pursue communal joy. Yeah. We don't even name it as the thing that it is. And it is, if I had to name a one thing that is the opposite of burnout, it's that experience of communal joy. It is literally moving your body in time with other people for a shared purpose. That could be a Taylor Swift concert. It could be singing in church. It could be your rugby team. Mm-hmm. It could be a Black Lives Matter march. Moving your body in time with other people for a shared purpose brings together all of the things that are most important for fighting burnout. It is physical activity. It is social connection. It is a sense of meaning and purpose. And it is the ultimate battery charger. It is the ultimate counterweight against burnout. The only other thing that's as powerful as rhythmic movement of your body with other people for a shared purpose, the only other thing that's as powerful is sleep. I love that answer. <laughs> I was waiting with bated breath, like, what is it going to be? What is it? Oh, oh my two favorite things. <laughs> and why sleep? Why, and what the, does sleep? What I love offer? about the shared movement is you don't, I mean, you mm. need to spend a lot of your life asleep. You spend like a third of your life asleep, but you only need to do this shared rhythmic thing occasionally, mm. just like big moments of it scattered through your year can be enough to maintain a battery charge. Yes. And I'm also, I've started this practice of finding little moments of connection and joy with random people throughout the day. Like you said, the barista, the cashier. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I am amazed at how profound those moments are adding up to be. Like when we recognize like, oh, you're a human in a room with me and we both matter. So this is where it's taking me and the connection then to sexuality, like people just feeling seen and appreciated. Yeah. Um, Especially those bodies that are not seen and appreciated and loved and honored and cherished day to day. Yes. Um, Bringing some extra love to those interactions has been so life-changing to me. This is one of the places where the science like is just barely exists. Five Mm. years, maybe 10 years worth of two-person neuroscience where they measure two people's brains simultaneously while they're engaged in some sort of shared activity. And it turns out what it takes to get two people's brains to begin entraining, which is to say like moving at the same rhythm, is mere co-presence. Two bodies sharing a physical space will automatically begin to change each other's. We are always co-regulating each other all the time. One of the reasons an introvert like me finds New York 
or another big city really challenging is that we are all co-regulating each other all the time. So I'm feeling the energy and moods and state of minds of all of these bodies around me all the time. And they're regulating me even as I'm regulating them. Uh, whereas when I just have like a couple of people around me, that's not too intense and overwhelming an amount of people, which is I different. I also from suspect you choose people who know how to self-regulate. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> I'm pretty specific. And I'm also totally fine when I'm teaching mm -hmm. because when you're in a leadership position, your job is to help the whole group and train into one big unit. Yeah. yeah. So it's just one pulse instead of being like 70 different people's pulses. Like you just get everybody in the room moving at one shared rhythm. Um, Amelia does that for a living as a choral conductor, obviously. Right. And it turns out I do the same thing as a sex educator. I've got a group of therapists and I need them to come with me into some deep science, which means I need to get their heartbeats all beating at the same pace as mine. Mm. Okay, so this has been hour one of our conversation about burnout. <laughs> um, thank you so much for this. Can you just bring it home to the bedroom? So I really feel like this book is the how-to manual human bodies need right now. Mm. If one was to take this book seriously and pull these strategies into our lives and project a, like a year out of embodying these strategies, what would you expect to change in someone's sex life? Oh my gosh. Oh, can they read both books? Can I imagine if they read both? Yes. <laughs> because sit next to each other on your bedside table. Yes. Perfect. They actually go. What I the covers of the American books uh, are very coordinated. That's not on purpose. Um, <laughs> so, what would happen in a year if you practice the things in the book? Is your physiological state would downregulate a couple of notches. So whatever level of stress you feel right now, imagine it gradually just like just gets a little, your body gets softer, your muscles get more flexible and responsive, your sleep gets deeper and more restorative, your ability to make eye contact and engage kindly and compassionately with all humans will grow more powerful. And that includes with the people with whom you share your life. If that's your children, yes. More patience, more kindness, more smile and laughter, less. <laughs> and with your partner, more patience, more kindness, more laughter. It also means uh, the sex you have may or may not be more spontaneous. They'll probably, I hope, be more physical affection, even if it's not sexual more hugging, more kissing, more holding hands and sitting next to each other, which builds a foundation, a bedrock of friendship and trust on which you can build an erotic connection that's as comforting or as exploratory and wild as you and your partner feel good building together. Um, the reason I want people to read both is so that they can play with what counts as sexual for them. So it's not just about building safety and trust. It is about building safety and trust, but from there launching into exploration. The other thing I did this year, which I probably should have mentioned earlier, is there's now gonna be a workbook to go with Come As You Are. Mm -hmm. It's called the Come As You Are workbook. It's coming out in June. Um, and uh, it includes worksheets where people sort of think through their sexual history and their breaks and accelerator like you were talking about. 
and I talk about the rituals of play and uh, homecoming that you can use to deepen your sense of connection. So the last thing I want to say about like, what will change a year from now? I want people to know how and have the skill to create a magic circle for sexuality in their lives where they shed the parts of their identity that they don't want to bring into an erotic connection and they step into this protected social space of connection and joy and play and imagination that can only exist in a place of safety and trust so that they can connect with the partner in an imaginative space, a spiritual space, if that's right for them, uh, and an exploratory space where you're, this touching of your skin isn't just the touching of your skin, but the touching of these two people and lives that are tangled together in probably more than just one way. Letting yourself explore that together in a protected space because you are not so overwhelmed by the rest of your life that you can find space for that. Does that make sense? Yes. What an invitation. What an invitation. Emily Nagossi, thank you so much for your time today. And we will link up all of these resources, both of these books in the show notes page at pleasuremechanics.com for this episode and so much more to come. Emily Nagossi, thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Emily Nagoski. And just a reminder, we are going into a four-part series exploring some of the themes in burnout. So be sure to grab your copy of the burnout book. There will be links in the show notes page. And join us next week for a conversation about the connection between sex and stress and how we can all prevent sexual burnout. Come on over to patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics to show your support for this show. That's patreon.com slash pleasure mechanics and pleasuremechanics.com slash burnout for all of the resources related to this mini series. All right. I am Chris from pleasuremechanics.com wishing you a lifetime of pleasure. Cheers. <laughs>